Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus through the pages of Mark's gospel. Every step of the way, we're discovering his authority and power. As the story moves forward and the crowds increase, so does the opposition. Will the message and ministry of Jesus be thwarted, or will God's kingdom continue to grow? Let's pick up where we left off in the story. Well, hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you're in one of our rooms live, I'm so glad that you're worshiping in the commons or at Grace Harbor Creek. Just want to say I love you guys so much. I'm convinced that the Spirit of God shows up transcendently and eagerly when we gather together in his name. So I'm expectant for you today. And, and if you're watching on TV or Facebook or YouTube, if you're watching online another way or listening to the podcast, whatever it is, I've been praying that no matter where you're joining us from, that God would meet you right there through his word and with an encounter with his Holy Spirit as you open your mind and heart to his ways. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 35 today. If you want to find your way there in your Bible or device, we're in Mark 4. And I'm so thrilled that we're coming back to our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. We took a, a little break in December and January for some important teachings and, and conversations, but we're back. And so uh, if you're new with us, uh, in September we began what, what will be a nearly two-year journey through this Gospel of Mark. And uh, we've only made it to chapter 4, and so you're not too late. <laughs> we're going to be... Uh, in Mark uh, consistently here for the next five weeks until we hit Palm Sunday and Easter and we're going to break away. And, and I would just want to ask you to make a little mini commitment, will you? Would you commit to church for the next five weeks? Like just say, I'm not going to miss church. I'm going to prioritize my faith. I'm going to commit five hours over the next five weeks uh, on my own spiritual journey. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be in my calendar. It's going to be on my schedule as a can't-miss obligation. And I just believe that God honors that when we prioritize him in our lives. So I want to give you a couple of handles here to grab onto to, to re-engage with Mark. Most importantly, you can visit our website over at whoisgrace.com forward slash Mark. It's designated just for this series. You're going to find resources and summaries uh, that are going to bring you up to speed. You'll find links to the reading plans that go with this series, as well as the podcast uh, that tends to drop on Monday after the Sunday that we're on. And so it's another good way to engage a great conversation around this gospel. And we've broken Mark down into three acts. We're still only in the first act. Uh, so you're, you're here at a good time. The other thing that we're doing is tracking four themes that run through Mark's gospel. And so the first is this son of God, son of man theme. Mark shows us over and over again that this picture of Jesus, and we're gonna see it again today, that's both divine and human. He became one of us to rescue us, but, but make no mistake, Jesus is God. And again, we'll see that today. The second theme is what we're calling cosmic conflict. So there's a supernatural side to many of the encounters that Jesus has through Mark. We're gonna see Jesus battling a satanic enemy from start to finish of the book. The third theme is a discipleship failure theme. Mark paints a very humbling picture of the disciples. They consistently don't get it. They don't understand Jesus' teachings. They're kind of thick-headed, untrustworthy, disobedient, and they generally just make us all feel better about ourselves. <laughs> and then in conjunction with that is what we're calling the ordinary heroes theme. So usually on the heels of a discipleship failure, there's an obscure character who comes out of the woodwork to show us what it truly means to follow Jesus and to have true faith. And so we're going to be pointing out these themes as we continue, uh, as we come across them as we continue in our study. So today, we're going to look at a very familiar story of Jesus, and it's, it's when he calms the storm. 
And there's a great Dutch painter, Rembrandt, you've all heard of him. He did this painting called Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's his interpretation of this story in Mark. And in the painting, you see a huge wave rising above the boat as if it's about to overturn it. And as you look closely at the painting, you can actually see that the panic etched on the faces of the disciples as they seek to fight this mighty storm. And the one guy you'll see there in the foreground in the red is hanging over the edge ready to just hurl into the sea. Jesus had been asleep. He'd just been woken up by a couple of the anxious disciples. You see that. And if you look closely at the painting, you also discover something unique. One of the disciples in the boat has a panicked look on his face. He's staring right back at you as you look at the painting. It's the guy dressed in green. And it happens to be the face of Rembrandt himself. Rembrandt painted himself into the scene. And I think he's reminding us of a very important truth, that sooner or later, we will all know the fear of a storm. We will all know the panic that sets in when life rages against us. We all face storms that we can't control. We all find ourselves terrified in a capsizing boat. And in the midst of those storms, we become familiar with the lessons that you can only learn when there's nothing else you can do to change the situation. And that's where the disciples found themselves in Mark chapter 4. And by the way, that's where some of you find yourselves today as well. Today, you're walking through a storm. And many Christians, as they walk through, they kind of suffer from what I would call a a fair-weather faith. Like if things are good, your faith is good. But if things are bad, your faith gets real shaky real fast. One of the great lessons of our text today is that even when you're at your worst, even when you're frantic and scrambling and relying completely on your own strength and, and your own limited solutions, Jesus is at his best. In fact, here's today's big idea. It's that Jesus uses storms to demonstrate his greatness. In this passage, Jesus reveals himself as the God who is bigger than our storms. And listen, your view of God is very, very important to your whole life. Like, because how you view God will determine how you view yourself. It will determine how you view your circumstances. And today, I hope this passage is going to expand your view of God. One thing is for sure in this story. The storm was not as big to Jesus as it was to the disciples. Even though the storm was above their head, it was still under his feet. So let's set the scene as we come to our text. I want you to look at Mark 4.35. Mark 4.35, it says this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Okay, so, so these first two verses, the, the, this section, kind of help us by setting the scene. This is the start of a, a new season of ministry for Jesus by the sea, and it's a new series of miracles. And so in this series, we're going to see Jesus demonstrating his power over nature, then his power over demons, and ultimately then his power over death. And in all three of those instances, we're going to see a contrast between fear and faith. In today's passage, The disciples, despite all that they had seen and heard from Jesus, they are deathly afraid. And it's our latest example of this discipleship failure theme that I just mentioned. And so Jesus leaves the crowd. He tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. Now that is a loaded phrase, by the way, that we're going to explore a lot more next week. And so they set out on the Sea of Galilee. Now, my wife Kim and I have had the chance, and some of the others of you have have traveled there, to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. 
It's a really unique body of water. It's surrounded by mountains on all sides. All those mountains have different elevations and, and when the wind blows just right, it can create these swirling winds and crazy storms on that little sea. And it's called a sea, but it's more like a lake. It's, it's 13 miles by eight miles compared to Chautauqua Lake in New York, which is 17 miles by two miles. It's kind of similar. It's also 700 feet below sea level compared to the Mediterranean. So it sits in this bowl and the water flows into it primarily from the Jordan River. But it's such pristine and, and fresh water that it provides even today about 50% of the water for Israel. It's always been a tremendous resource, not just for water, but for fish. And the unique geography of it meant that, that quick storms could come through from out of nowhere. Anyone familiar with that? Not, not with the actual sea, but with the storms of life that can seem to come from nowhere. Like, like one moment you're cruising along and then the next moment a phone call, the next moment a text, the next moment a piece of news comes to you or circumstance arises that makes you say, this, this changes everything. And whether it changes everything in that moment or much later down the road, it's a storm that you just didn't see coming. Well, back to the stories, the disciples were, were generally comfortable on the water. Up to seven of the 12 disciples were professional fishermen. They knew the water. They were trained on the water. And, and not just any water. Many of them made their living on this very sea, the Sea of Galilee. But they were about to face a storm like they had never encountered before. And, and while this account really happened in real history, it's also hard to ignore that the boat becomes almost a symbolic picture for, for all of those who travel through life with Jesus. That there are times when you have to, to leave what you know behind on the security of this shore and venture toward, toward the mission that Jesus has for you. And sometimes on the way to the mission, it means facing storms. So I wanna frame the rest of this account this way. Let, let's just call it surviving storms with Jesus. Now look at verse 37 and we'll pick up the story. It says, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, here's the first thing that I want you to see. It's just to pick up on what we just said. Some storms can't be avoided, okay? The disciples found themselves in a situation beyond their control, and it seemed like it was gonna be catastrophic. They didn't cause it. They didn't plan it. They didn't plan for it. They were just in it. But, but here's the thing. God was about to use it. See, part of why people get so discouraged in the midst of unavoidable storms is that we live with this illusion of control. And it's true, we control more stuff in our lives than anyone has ever controlled in all of history. We control when we go, where we go, we control what we wear, what we eat, we control the temperature of the rooms that we walk into, we control what we read, what we watch. Like this concept would have been mind-bending for most humans for most of history. But it's led us in our generation to this illusion that, that if I'm smart enough, if I'm clever enough, strong enough, like if I can get the seat belts and the airbags just right, that then I can make my life accident proof. I can make my life loss proof, suffering proof. But guess what? Out of the blue, storms come. Disease, disaster, disappointment. And all of a sudden you've lost control. In fact, you, you may even realize that you never had it to begin with. And this truth starts to set in that on this planet, life is incredibly fragile, even for the best and smartest and strongest of us. Your unexpected storm may be when, when someone you love dearly passes away. You don't understand why. Or maybe you lose a job that had become kind of your, your identity. 
or you're betrayed by someone that you love and you never would have seen it coming. Not from them, not, not them. Your storm may be when life has you so confused, you don't know where to turn next or what to do next. Storms can catch us completely off guard. And part of the problem is that a feel-good version of American Christianity has tried to weed out suffering from our theology. Health and wealth preachers are suggesting that the Christian life, if lived correctly, will insulate you from problems. You should be healthy and wealthy and whole, and if you're not, then you're doing something wrong with your faith. You're not spiritual enough. You're not praying enough. We need a more robust theology of suffering because you're not going to get very far into the Bible before you run into very godly, very holy men and women who are stricken with suffering. Abraham and Joseph and Job and Naomi and Esther and all the prophets. And then you get to the New Testament and Paul's talking about how many times he's been beaten and flogged within an inch of his life and shipwrecked and unjustly prisoned and imprisoned and John the Baptist is thrown into jail. He's about to be beheaded and he sends word to Jesus and he's like, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? Suffering comes. Storms come. And you can't spiritualize your way out of that eventuality. And and sometimes the storms are not your fault. And the only thing that you can do is to submit to God's sovereign plan and walk well through it and, and, and to know that he's there walking with you. Some of you are beating yourself up for the storm that you're in right now because you think that, you know, you could have done this differently or that differently. And that may be true. But for some, you know, you're, you're in it due to no fault of your own. It's a storm that only God saw, saw coming. And he will use it for his purposes. Some storms can't be avoided. And that's where the disciples find themselves. Here, here's the second truth. Storms can tempt us to abandon our faith. Look at verse 38. It says, But he, that's Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And so I love this picture of Jesus, asleep in the midst of a raging storm. And there's a spiritual side to him sleeping. Like, you can only fall asleep like that in a storm like that if you have a deep trust in God. Like, there is nothing to worry about. But there's also a humanity to this picture. Like, Jesus was exhausted. He was just physically done after all the teaching and the traveling and the people and the crowds. He needed sleep. See, sometimes we picture Jesus as superhuman, but but this is one of those times that we see that he was not just fully God, he was fully man. He took naps. And so Jesus is sleeping, and I've always thought that the, the disciples had to have been hesitant to go over and wake him up. Like, this was their department after all. They were the sailors. He was the carpenter. They could navigate a storm on the water all by themselves. Thank you very much. And so they're they're clamoring at the oars and they're bailing water out of the boat and they're frantically scurrying around the deck trying to find solutions, screaming to one another when the next wave was about to hit. Like, have you ever seen that show, Deadliest Catch? You know, these veteran sailors are trying to handle it without waking up the greenhorn who's sleeping. You know, but this one has gotten out of their control and they're terrified. And again, it just shows that this was a doozy of a storm. And this question that they ask in verse 38 implies that they they think they're going to die. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They were afraid. Now, let me just share a couple working definitions that I think are helpful for us. One is a definition of fear. Fear is the emotion that people feel when a danger is actually present. Anxiety is fear, but it's the fear that comes from worrying about danger that might happen. 
So they were in the middle of an actual danger situation. So they were experiencing raw fear. And I think in the Psalms we discover kind of two different levels of this fear. Both are expressed here in this text. One level the Psalms expresses is physical fear. And the main question that we ask at this level of fear is what is going to happen to me? And so in one sense, this is a good kind of fear. It's the fear that makes us jump out of the way if a car is coming to, at us or you know, keeps us from touching a hot stove. What's going to happen to me? And so when the disciples say, we're perishing, <laughs> we're dying, that's level one fear. But there's a second level. It's a deeper, debilitating kind of fear that we see in the Psalms and here. And it creates this low-grade anxiety that, that outlives the circumstances. And it can actually tempt us to abandon faith in God altogether. It's the second level. It's spiritual fear. And if the first level asks the question, what is going to happen to me? The second level asks the question, where is God? And this is what we hear when the disciples say, don't you care? Don't you care? That's a spiritual fear. And fear at any level can cause us to do all kinds of crazy things. You probably heard the standard responses. It's fight or flight or freeze has been added. Fight, that is you just start blaming others or lashing out or getting physical or getting defensive. You hurt people around you. Flight is when you stop at nothing to kind of get out of the situation. You perceive everything and everyone as a threat and you recoil. And then freeze is just when you isolate. You go into a depressive hole. You become completely paralyzed. And some of you are in a storm and you've moved into fear mode. Level one or level two, fight, flight, or freeze. The disciple were in all of the above. And if they'd only remembered that they were at sea with the one who has power over the wind and waves. And finally they did. And so after they tried everything themselves, they're on the brink of abandoning their faith. The sailors swallowed their pride and they shook the carpenter awake by the shoulders. They needed divine intervention. You know, usually the first true act of faith in your storm is when you cry out in desperation to Jesus for the first time. And they weren't great prayers, you know. Don't you care that we're dying? Jesus, how could you be sleeping when we're in such danger? You ever prayed those kind of prayers? It's okay. The best of us often wonder why God seems to be asleep at the wheel while the great storms of our life are swirling, threatening to drown us. It's naive to believe that any of us are so solid in our faith that we won't, at one time or another, wonder where God is while we're hurting and wonder what God is doing while we suffer and wonder why God doesn't do much more to help out. But it's also easy to misinterpret his silence as indifference. See, that's the point here. The, the, the storms often tempt us to abandon faith. And, and so how do we combat that? Well, when you cry out, where is God in my storm? You, you need to be able to remember the answer. We get an answer here in the text. He's there in the boat with you. Like that's the best news of all. He's with you. And maybe the time isn't just right yet to display his power, but he's there and he's available and he knows. And so what was the best use of the disciples' times? The time? Was it like when they were pulling the oars or when, it was when they were bailing water or barking orders to each other? No, the ones who used their time the wisest were the ones who were calling upon Jesus to intervene. You see, the best thing that we can often do in the middle of a storm is to seek him, seek him. Even if he seems silent, cry out to him because he's like, you know, you know one of these mothers at a kid's birthday party when there's a hundred other kids running around and all that noise and all that craziness, she can still pick out, she can still hear the unique cry of her child. The, the Bible says this about God in Psalm 34, when the righteous cry for help, 
The Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. In your trouble, in your storm, cry out to God. He's right there in the boat with you. That leads to the third truth that I want you to see from this text, and that's that God uses storms. God uses storms, and we can see here that he uses them in two distinct ways. The first is he uses storms to demonstrate his power. I said earlier that when when you're at your worst, that God's at his best, well, I want you to see in verse 39. The disciples are scrambling and screaming and, and shaking, and it says this. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. (laughs) It's so matter of fact, but but I want you to see the incredible nature of this miracle. First, the patience of it all, the calmness of it all. Jesus heard their desperate cries in the middle of this crazy storm and he responded in his time. His response reminds me of the, the Lazarus account. He, he appeared to be late. You remember that? The sisters were, we were like, we're, we called you days ago and, 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 he, and our brother died in the meantime. And if you had just come when we asked you, it would have been fine. Jesus is never late. He's always on time. And so he wakes up and he yawns and he stretches his arm and he scratches and wipes the sleepers out of his eyes, whatever. And then he's like rebuking the wind. And he says to the sea, shut up, be still. It's actually the same phrase in the original language that he's been telling to the demons. No theatrics, no abracadabra, no no effort. He just spoke to the wind and the wind stopped instantaneously. He spoke to the water and the water stopped instantaneously. Notice both. He spoke to the wind and the water. With one word, millions of horsepower of wind energy is halted and millions of gallons of water are stopped and made like glass. If the wind had stopped, but the water hadn't stopped, that the waves would have hit the shore and they would have bounced back and collided, it would have been a mess. And that would go on for quite some time after the winds had stopped because the water would still be moving. But he stopped the wind and he stopped the water at the same time, simply by speaking. And can you imagine that? Like, you know how loud a storm can be, right? Like, especially on the water. Think, think about footage that you've seen from newscasters in a, in a hurricane. You know, they're screaming at the top of their lungs, leaning into the wind, holding onto their hats. And can you imagine one second they're scream, screaming at the top of their lungs just to be heard, and the next second everything stops and they're screaming now awkwardly, very loud, into total silence while floating on the most tranquil of fishing ponds on a warm summer day, totally still. Just think about how dramatic this miracle was. And what's Mark telling us by this? He's reminding us that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Yes, Jesus was just taking a nap in all of his humanity. But let's make no mistake that this is God we're dealing with. Like you're, you're looking at the creator of all things here. This is the son of God. He is the son of God proven by his birth. He is the son of God proven by his victory over Satan, proven by his teachings, proven by his sinless life, proven by his miraculous powers, and proven now by his tremendous control of his creation. He has complete power over nature. He controls it. He created it. He sustains it. And he can tell it to shut up whenever he wants to. 
The, the psalmist speaks frequently of God's voice being the only thing that can still the waves. And the disciples, remember, were, were raised memorizing the Old Testament. They would have been very familiar with these passages like Psalm 89 that says, You, God, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And Psalm 107, 23 it says this, that says, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, 25, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the seas, 28, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So, so what is Mark's point? He's saying, this is God we're dealing with. And oh, by the way, Jesus is bigger than any storm. Let me ask you something. If God can control the wind and the waves, don't you think he can control your storm? If God can alter the very laws of nature, I believe he can help me with my problems. See, God uses storms to demonstrate his power. But there's a second way. Look at verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You can almost hear his frustration. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here's the second way that God uses storms is to develop our faith. See, there's something in all of us that, that tries to shrink God down into something we can understand. Like we wanna have a manageable God. But passages like this, make God completely unmanageable. He's actually threatening. The disciples going from being afraid of the storm, being afraid of dying, to being even more afraid of the one who's standing next to them in the boat. Because now they've just seen, he's way more powerful than the storm that was just about to kill us. And so they're in awe of Jesus' power. They had seen him teach, they had seen him work miracles, but power over nature was a whole different thing. See, Proverbs reminds us that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. This is a righteous fear, a holy fear. We're left standing with the disciples in the boat and asking, who is this? And as we're staring at sheer power, Jesus looks back and asks this penetrating question. Do you still have no faith? What's faith? What did Jesus want them to understand about faith in this moment? What does he want us to understand? Well, I think it's this, that faith is not some touchy-feely internal power or force that you just try to embody. Faith is not something that, that you harness or meditate your way into. Faith is not a formula that once you figure it out, God is going to respond to your requests on cue. Faith is not the same as confidence, like I have faith in my team or I'm betting on myself. It's not like if you can just stockpile enough of it, stockpile enough faith through my good deeds or through other means that you're, you can somehow faith God into working for you. In fact, Jesus taught that if you have a very little of it, that's enough. I hear people all the time say, I just need more faith, I just need more faith. What's Jesus teaching us here? He's teaching us that the issue is not the size of your faith or the amount of your faith. It's the object of your faith. He's saying to his disciples in the boat, and he says to every one of us who are searching for answers and scared out of our minds in the middle of a storm, the object of your faith must be me. Don't you see what I can do? 
Don't you see who I am? Don't you see how foolish it is to put your faith in the boat or to put your faith in your own rowing abilities or to put your faith in your navigation skills? This one is bigger than you. And I'm the only one who can see you out of this mess that you're in. And so what does it mean to put our faith in Jesus? It means believing that Jesus is right about stuff and then acting on those beliefs. Jesus is right about marriage. Jesus is right about relationships. Jesus is right about money. Jesus is right about prayer. Jesus is right about servanthood. Jesus is right about the emptiness of religion. Jesus is right about servant leadership. Jesus is right about how to suffer. Jesus is right about the poor. Therefore, because I believe he's right, I'm going to readjust my life around what he has to say about those things. That's faith. And sometimes the storms are about increasing your faith. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1.9 as he describes the troubles and the pressures and the persecution that, that he had endured in the province of Asia. He says this, but this happened to me so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead, by the way. I like how he throws that in. One of my dear friends from college experienced the death of her husband a couple of decades ago now almost. They were young, they had three little girls, cancer took him. And she wrote a letter shortly after his death, still in the middle of the storm, that expresses this so vividly. And I wanted to, sh to share this letter with you. She said these words. She said, it seems impossible that our memories of Lucy's first birthday will be her only birthday memories that included her dad. Our spring memories from last year are our last that didn't include cancer. The girls' birthdays, Easter and Mother's Day, were unblemished. We treasure those times with joy and look forward to reliving them in the coming weeks. However, in our minds, they sometimes render our todays all but impossible. How great will be Ray's absence as the new year presses forward. A friend sent us an Irish dancing jib-jab with our faces cut out on the Irish dance girls. It, was, it began and I was just so sad to see only the four of us, but then Ray appeared and it was so nice to see his smiling face with ours. How I miss that face. It's kind of an appropriate parallel for what I feel these days. The girls and I are going along and doing our best to have special family times together as a little family unit, just like we used to. But goodness, we miss his presence so much. And we travel to my niece's softball game and we plan cookouts on the south side and many things I seek out, things that he would have loved because they make him seem so close. And then I particularly feel the sadness that he cannot be with us. He would have loved to do all this. And I go back to our prayers that in the inexplicable, God will be near, that his love for us will be as present as the love we've lost. And then she quotes Hebrews, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And then she signed it as she always did, not alone and not afraid. See, the prize at the end of our storm is not necessarily that everything that was broken is fixed. It's not necessarily that all that was wrong is made right on this side of heaven. But what we get in the middle of the storm is Jesus. And we don't use him to get something else. He's the prize. And here's the comforting truth. When we're in the middle of a storm and struggling to make sense of it all, when we're on the verge of losing our faith, when we're scrambling around in our own strength, trying to solve it and control it and manage it, where's Jesus? He's in the boat and he's at his best. Jesus uses storms to demonstrate 
his greatness. There's a discipleship question that goes with each of these themes in Mark that we cover over at that website that I mentioned earlier. And because today we consider the power of Jesus as both son of God and son of man, the discipleship question that goes with that theme is this. How does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? I would encourage you to work that out with him this week during your chair time. I love you guys.